Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is Thursday, September 2nd, 2021, and we will be discussing a topic that I've been sort of milling around in my head. It's the myth of the charismatic co-founder or founder. I'm here with my father, Michael Harper. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine. I'm looking forward to this conversation because we've talked about this, and uh, I just I just want to share it on our podcast because I think uh, the ideas that you've been talking about and kicking around we've been talking about is very, very interesting and insightful, and people need to think about this. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I mean, I think I'm influenced a bit by the fact that we've watched a few documentaries, I've seen actually more than you, of these young, charismatic co-founders that basically are just con artists. And... I don't know where the idea that a, a founder had to be charismatic came from. Because if we look at some <laughs> of the most successful companies in the world, their leaders are not really known for being charismatic. And I, mm-hmm. I, and the thing is, I do know the idea of where it came from. It came from one guy. And you know who that guy is? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. So Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Steve Jobs, very charismatic, and he's a leader, and he built it, and yes, but it wasn't without controversy. Uh-huh. And Steve Jobs is also the only one of these leaders at the Big Five that's uh, no longer with us. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why was because uh, I believe that he had a... Uh, he had rare pancreatic cancer, and it was rare insofar as I think, and maybe I should have researched this, but it was treatable. And instead of getting Western medicine treatment, he went to have like faith healers in India try to heal him. So maybe by being charismatic, he was also susceptible to uh, c- claims that were less than true, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, because he he w- might, may have been okay had he sought traditional, you know, chemotherapy and radiation type treatment. And mm-hmm. yet, alas, he did not. <laughs> yes, he didn't. Um, so, yes, so Steve Jobs, he's the archetype. He comes, excuse me, he comes out with his Apple conferences and he says one more thing. And then he shows you the iPhone or he shows you the iPad or he shows you the uh, iPod. <laughs> Very... Uh, um, I don't know. Dramatic. Yes. And, and, it, and it worked. Uh, and also he did lead the company into new areas and, and uh, the forefront of uh, the Apple uh, industry. Yeah, the cons- especially the consumer electronics and the personal computer industry. That's exactly um, right. And I think to sort of sell something to a consumer, uh, B2C, you do want a good salesman. And I do think that with with the three fraudsters, I don't know, I'm, Adam Newman's not considered a fraudster, so I want to be careful calling him a fraudster. I don't think that he's um, had legal action taken against him, but Billy McFarlane's in jail, and Elizabeth Holmes is facing federal securities and exchange wire fraud charges as we speak. So... They were very um, I'm sorry, I just get distracted. Uh, they were very what's the word? 
uh, charismatic and they were big sellers. But a lot of, I mean, what they sold was a big deck of cards, house of cards. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, Adam Newman, all he was selling was office space. And he was selling about a billion dollars worth of office space. And it, they valued his company at $45 billion. Who knows why? But it maybe is because, like, well, his charisma. But the thing is, if I have a house that's worth $100,000, I shouldn't be worth $45 million. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so what is it about these leaders that people, like, the thing is, they never had the sales. See, Steve Jobs turned his charisma into sales of iPhones and iPods and iPads to the general public. He turned his charisma and he used it as a weapon to get people to buy into the Apple ecosystem. With our fraudsters, or I hate, I hesitate to call Adam Newman a fraudster because he's not been charged with anything, but with our people that made companies that were worth billions, in the case of Elizabeth Holm and Adam Newman, and then all of that uh, value just deteriorated nearly overnight. And then with Billy McFarland, who's just a flat-out fraudster, um, I think they even call him, yeah, that's his job title in the Wikipedia, is fraudster. Uh, they never really had the sales. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. Steve Jobs made the sales real, and he, he used his charisma as a weapon against, and not as a weapon, as an asset against the consumer market. Whereas Elizabeth Holmes, Adam Newman, and Billy McFarland, they used their charisma to convince investors that this would be an extraordinarily popular thing among the consumer market, and the investors lost all their money before that ever came to fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the thing is, when you're buying something, you should focus on what you're buying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like Warren Buffett, you never buy anything unless you understand it. Yes, Warren um, Buffett's. Yeah. I want to just pull up some Warren Buffett rules for investing. You you could talk. I'll pull up his rules for investing. Yeah. So what happened was is the charisma, and so people will uh, give you money if you're you're very charismatic, and instead of listening to what they're actually saying and uh, fact checking uh, what they're saying, what their statements are. And that's exactly what Warren Buffett talks about. He says, no, uh, uh, fact check it. Is it real? Uh, is what they're saying legitimate? And uh, like rule number one, there you go, David. <laughs> never lose money. Rule number two, never forget rule number one. <laughs> yeah, and throwing good money after bad is a way to lose money. And uh, so a lot of these people did. Well, also, you know, if the business does well, the stock eventually follows. The thing was, you know, we work, the investors are what made the value. Yes, he was getting people into office buildings, but you had to sort of look at what business was WeWork doing. WeWork was renting out office space, and the amount of office space that they controlled and rented out was certainly not worth $45 billion. Um, as a value investor, I'm not sure that Warren Buffett would invest in WeWork because he'd take a look at it and say, this is a real estate play. And it's a real estate play worth half a billion dollars. Why would I buy equity in a company at a valuation of $45 billion when the company's not worth that? Because, like he says in Rule 3, it's far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. <laughs> but see, he he did the fact check. He looked at the, he looked at the numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't just believe their hype. 
Yes. And I think, and these people are very good with hype. She says, oh, it's going to be this. It's going to be this. Okay, show me. Uh, and so you don't believe what they say. Yeah, you're not really buying um, their assets, their year-over-year growth, their sales. You're buying the story they're telling you. Right. But the thing was, Steve Jobs was able to tell the story. To go back to Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. he was able to tell the story um, to consumers. And so they did buy iPhones. They did buy iPods. They did buy iPads. And they loaded them up with iTunes. And that translated to real-world success for Apple. Now let's move on to... So we know that Steve Jobs has become the archetype. And Elizabeth Holmes even wore a black turtleneck to be like Steve Jobs. She loved Steve Mm -hmm. Jobs. But I would say that Steve Jobs is the exception that proves the rule. Because I would argue that most... Especially if you look at big tech founders, they're not particularly charismatic. And I think we should start with the least charismatic one of them all. Mr. Is he a robot? <laughs> is he an alien? Is he some combination of the two? Mark Elliot Zuckerberg from White Plains, New York. <laughs> no one would hear Mark Zuckerberg talk and say, that is one charismatic man. Now, so Facebook's success has become um, the value proposition of the product itself, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the maximizing the value proposition of the product itself was what Zuckerberg focused on. Not sell, right. selling this to investors. I mean, I'm sure that at some point in time he did focus on selling it to investors because he did get venture capitalists and investment firms to buy into it and facilitate his growth. But that was never his focus. When he was talking to venture capitalists and saying, this could be huge, this could unite the world, this could, we could have a billion people on Facebook communicating with each other, he wasn't, it wasn't just all smoke and mirrors. It was true. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a, a means to keep people on the platform, and that means was not his own personal magnetism. Yes, but it was his ability, though. So he did have the ability to do it. And so you talk about a, uh, uh, the charismatic leader, the charismatic founder. I mean, uh, so you have <laughs> that was a mistake The you have the charisma, uh, charisma. Then you have the story and then you have the numbers behind the story. And then you have the ability to actually do what you're saying. And so there's a lot of things you consider before you start throwing a lot of money uh, uh, around uh, to on ideas and people. And I think. Uh, a lot of people don't really do the whole the whole stack. They'll just do part of it. They go, okay, well, I believe that person. I believe that person. And uh, actually, a lot of business is done that way. They'll they'll pick one thing. And yeah, maybe there's there's five criteria. They'll pick one criteria and they go, well, I like that. So let's just go with that. So what about the other four? It doesn't indicate that. And so people will make those decisions all the time. Mm-hmm. And so be a little bit more circumspect and a little bit more 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 cautious and also uh look deeper look at all the different angles before you start throwing good money uh after ideas and sometimes you will speculate you know but when you do that make sure you have an exit strategy yeah (laughs) it's not it's not just all in or nothing uh that's 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 not investment that's that's craziness so i yeah i mean it's fascinating that okay you have steve jobs he's the outlier let's talk about real startups 
Um, okay. Real startups that, I mean, of course, Apple became the biggest company in the world. But Facebook is huge. Zuckerberg, not charismatic. Bill Gates perhaps has a bit more charisma than Zuckerberg, but no one would say that this guy is uh, a magnet for attention. I mean, I guess he is these days because people love conspiracy theories. But he started Microsoft with his childhood friend, Paul Allen. And I've heard these stories before. Um, Alan, he and Alan founded Microsoft in Albuquerque, New Mexico, huh? So that's kind of cool. Well, when they were young, when they were kids, Paul Allen and Bill Gates, they had access to a teletype and a mainframe, and they learned how to program. And I'm going to butcher this story because I haven't uh, heard it in years. But yeah, so when he was in eighth grade... The Mother's Club at school used proceeds from Lakeside School Robin Shale to buy a teletype mo model 33 ASR terminal and a block of computer time on a GE computer for the students. Um, Gates took an interest programming the GE system in BASIC. Um, he went and he saw other time on computers. But as a teenager, he and Alan were going into... At 17, Gates formed a venture with Alan called Trafodata to make traffic counters based on the Intel 8008 processor in 1972. Uh, so he was actually solving business problems for people using programming while he was still in high school in 1972. I'm sorry, I didn't have the... <laughs> um, he realized the power of programming to do this. And, uh, I mean, the rest is history or whatever. He founded Microsoft and became one of the richest people in the world. But... He had a passion for using computers to create programs to solve business problems. And that really became Microsoft's core competency. He did not have the passion for standing in front of a room, uh, auditorium full of people, and giving a presentation that brought tears to people's eyes and, and cheers to their hands. And I think that one thing that made Bill Gates successful was that he was about the work. Right. He was about... Um, programming. He was about electronics. He was about sort of seeing very early on that software was the path to uh, success for him because IBM, you know, they had a stranglehold on the market, but he struck a deal to have IBM's operating system be DOS and the rest is history. Now Microsoft mm -hmm. is a bigger company than IBM. <laughs> Yeah. So he had proof of concept. He had, even as a teenager, he showed that it could be done mm -hmm. and he just wanted to, to grow it and also to uh, to leverage it. And he did. Yes. And I think you've said this before working in industry. A lot of times the best sales pitch you can have is to demonstrate that what you're going to offer someone totally works. You don't need to be a silver-tongued devil. You don't need to go in and convince them of some sort of revolutionary, world-changing thing that's going to happen if they buy your software. You just need to show them your software works. And mm -hmm. other software doesn't, so buy our software. And that's, sometimes that's enough. Yeah, because if you have people follow you because of what you have done, then they will stick with you. Mm -hmm. because, and they will help you make it grow. If they follow you just because of what you say, 
then it's going to be on you. And there's that's and anything goes wrong, then you have gone wrong, not your ideas and not what you've done. So and so uh, he he had proof of concept as a teenager. He showed that this could happen. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he didn't need to have the charisma because he would go to the people who would look at what his work was. Mm-hmm. And they invested in what he did, not necessarily his story or who he was. They go, oh, yeah, I see that. Okay, yeah, we will do what you're doing, what you're showing us, because, yeah, we can see that. Because they see how what, what he did would fit into what they're doing, you know, at IBM, and that would be it. Yeah. Very um, different approach. But there are a lot of people out there, David, who who don't think that way, that have a lot of money. They have millions and millions of dollars, and they'll give it to someone who just has a slick story. And uh, so... A uh, a person like that and their money is soon parted. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that people like to invest in story. They don't like to invest in value. That's why Warren Buffett is successful and so many people lose all their money in the stock market. He only invests in value. He only invests if he understands it. He only invests if he sees um, that he's buying a company that will be profitable into the future. And he holds on to his investments. But if he's told, oh, we're, we're starting the we revolution. Oh, what do you do? Uh, well, we buy floors of office buildings and we renovate them and, and we rent the office space to individuals and small teams for a day or two. He's like, okay, so my guess is that you're worth a billion dollars. No, we're valued at $45 billion. He's like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> you know, he would never invest in that. It would seem like an inflated valuation to him. Yeah. They say, well, how, how'd you come to that figure? How'd you dig, how'd you get that? Show me how you got that. So he wouldn't be he wouldn't be dazzled by the words. Mm-hmm. He would say, show me the numbers. Yeah, he doesn't show care about numbers. a wee revolution. He cares about um, earnings per share or uh, right. price to equity ratio. That those are the things that he cares much more about a wee revolution. Um, right. Moving on, Jeff Bezos. Would you say that Jeff Bezos is charismatic? Uh, I've heard him talk. I wouldn't say he's charismatic like these other people at all. Uh, but he's logical. He he has a lot of good things to say. He just doesn't push it like the other people. I would say... He, but, he, he's more matter-of-fact about what he's talking about. I would say all these guys, Zuckerberg, Jobs, Gates, Bezos, Larry Page and Sergey Brim, they're all smart. They're all oh, very, very smart. Yeah. But yeah. I would say Jobs is the only one that's really charismatic. So how did Amazon work? How did they succeed despite not really having a charismatic founder who's also coincidentally from Albuquerque, New Mexico? Do you think the proximity to Los Alamos (laughs) might have something to do with uh, uh, both Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos sort of having Albuquerque roots? I mean, Bill Gates is from Seattle, but... Could be, could be, because it, it is uh, the most concentrated uh, area on Earth of uh, PhDs in Los Alamos. Back back when I was there, yeah, you know, they said it's it's crazy, and I walked in there and and uh, and uh, everyone had at least one PhD. Some people had two. So they were very, very, very intelligent, very academic, very, very uh, uh, accomplished. 
And so there may be something of, something about that. And they did a lot with with uh, uh, Albuquerque because this Los Alamos is up west of uh, Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. But they did a lot with Albuquerque. With uh, they had different uh, satellite groups that they worked with. Yeah. So it could be. It could be. Um, I guess that's that's uh, beside the point. That's beside the point. Uh, but Bezos, but, if you if you listen to him talk, yeah, he's smart. He makes sense. But he's not like Steve Jobs. He's not a guy you would want to follow. And I think the interesting thing is what Steve Jobs saw was I can use my salesmanship to make this device in his hand here in the picture that's just like an Android device be worth more money. I can make a laptop that's just like a Windows PC be worth more money by the value of making it desirable, branding. So the Apple name, the Apple logo on the back means that it's good and you'll pay extra money for it and it's a status symbol and he sort of built a brand a, a consumer electronics brand based on the power of a salesmanship what jeff bezos said was i'm going to use the internet to sell everything i don't need to build a brand i'm going to sell every brand that ever existed um and in order to do that i think it takes operational efficiency not salesmanship Right. And I think maybe a way to describe this, and, and this may be wrong, but I'll throw it out there, is that uh, Steve Jobs is really talking about uh, what it means to the person. Like, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this. And not really talking about how that would be done. But Bezos and, and Gates and Zuckerberg says, well, here's how it's going to be done. And then people begin to see how they could use it, mm-hmm. and so they talk more about the about what would what would be done, what the technology would, what the advancements are, what I'm going to be doing, instead of here's what you're going to have. Well, the people can see that from what you're saying, and uh, that that may be a subtle difference, but a significant difference on success, on longevity of success. But then Steve Jobs worked because he had a machine behind him to yes. make it work. The others did not. I mean, the biggest fraud was was the uh, um, who was the guy from Fire Fire Festival? Billy, Billy McFarland. Billy McFarland. He would sell. People would give him money, and he had absolutely nothing to sell. It was all just ideas, and he would have pictures, but he wouldn't. Have, I mean, you'd go there. People would go there and says, "What is this? This is not a festival. This is just an <laughs> island with nothing there." Uh, where are we living? And these tents were these are just tents that I, I could put a tent in the backyard that was better than those. Mm-hmm. No, what are you talking about? And so he he just totally defrauded people. But so did Elizabeth Holmes. So did Elizabeth Holmes. She had she had the same kind of a of a, from what I understand. I didn't see the the video. You did, but from what you told me, yeah. I mean, she would say things that were not true. Well, but I think the difference between Billy McFarland and Elizabeth Holmes is she made these promises about one prick of blood being able to do 100 tests. And that's they were untrue. And then she raised or she raised her company to a nine billion dollar valuation on the backs of claims that were not true. And that's that's one thing that's a bit fraudulent. I don't know. But the real thing that I think gets me about Elizabeth Holmes is that she went live. She went live with her machines, 
with her blood testing, and she started giving people, I think in Arizona, where she went live in a pilot program for Walgreens, wildly inaccurate blood test results. So people that had cancer that was relapse, uh, relapsing, no, not relapsing, um, in, what's it when a cancer, remiss, remitting, when oh. they had cancer in remission, they'd go get a blood test, and the results would be wildly inaccurate, and they'd be convinced that they had cancer again. People that were pregnant would go get a blood test, and it would be a Theranos blood test, and they'd be convinced that they'd had a miscarriage when they hadn't because these blood tests were giving people inaccurate information. Well, the thing is, if you made decisions based upon that information, horrible, horrible things could happen. So, yes, Billy McFarlane was a fraudster. He was selling smoke and mirrors, and nothing was there. But all that happened was a few thousand kids ended up on Bahamas being inconvenienced for a few days. Um, they lost thousands of dollars. So yes, they got defrauded. So a crime was committed against them. I don't want to minimize that. I know that people took joy in seeing these, oh, look at these rich kids fly to the Bahamas and get stuck there. That's hilarious. Uh, I, they got crimed. You know, they're the victims of a crime. So it's you can have shot and Freud and laugh at them, but I don't think that's really all that appropriate. But I think that what Elizabeth Holmes did, oh, I don't have the thing, what Elizabeth Holmes did was much more despicable because people could have made health decisions that greatly affected their lives because of her dishonesty. Yeah, it affected their lives, not just their money. Money comes and goes, but your life, you only have one. Mm -hmm. yeah, and once it's gone, it's not coming back. So like you said, the difference was Steve Jobs did have a product to sell people. Mm-hmm. He actually had a functional product. If you bought an iPhone, chances are you liked it. Uh, if you bought tickets to the Fire Festival, you probably weren't going to enjoy yourself too much. Nothing's going to happen. If you bought an iPhone, you would get an iPhone. Mm -hmm. If you buy tickets to the Fire Festival, there's no festival. Nothing's there. It wasn't even smoke and mirrors. It was an idea with no smoke and no mirrors. It was just this guy selling you the Brooklyn Bridge. And it just didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Something that didn't exist. It was remarkable. What's remarkable is that people, people, uh, not well, people bought it because yeah, sure, but people invested in it. Millions of dollars they were investing yes. in it. And he could talk millions of dollars out of people with an idea, with no real, uh, uh, with nothing to show for how how it was done. Except there were pictures. They went down and took some pictures, but then. You and I could go down there tomorrow and uh, hire some people and take pictures and say, look, we have a $100 million program going on here when all we have is just pictures. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much what Billy McFarlane did. And I think there's sort of stories of sort of bootstrapping your company, fake it till you make it type of stuff. But sometimes you fake it until you burn out because you're not going to make it. Because you don't have the goods. I think the difference between these guys, Adam Newman, Billy McFarlane, Elizabeth Holmes, and these guys, even including Steve Jitt, is not uh, their ability to fake it till they make it. It's their ability to deliver on their promises. It's their ability right. to have a cogent business model. It's their ability to sort of design something that's going to work long term. The fraudsters, the young younger fraudsters, not including Adam Newman because he hasn't been charged with fraud, but he did sell a vision of WeWork, WeLive, where people were living in these 200 square foot apartments uh, 
crammed in together. He was profiting off this the whole time. Now he lives in a $45 million penthouse in New York City by himself and his wife. And it's like, so he, I don't think that he really bought into the we revolution. <laughs> no. I think that he was more bought into the me revolution. If that's what <laughs> right. I got out of that documentary. But these younger CEOs that sort of sold a story, sold a dream, they didn't have the goods to back it up. The thing with Apple, with Facebook, with Microsoft, with Amazon, and with Google, they had a product that people wanted to use. Mm -hmm. So it's not and just they, a... And, and they focused on the product, and they focused on the product, they focused on the delivery, they focused on developing that product, and making it as efficient and effective as possible. The others just, uh, just focused on the story. Yes. So I guess to come back to the point of the episode, what's the most important thing? It's not that your founder has charisma. It's that you're, you have a product that people want to use, mm -hmm. a functioning product that people want to use. And uh, that idea uh, can be transferred to all different other things, too. So be careful when you hear a story. Uh, you know, fact check it. Is it true? Is it really true? What? What's the basis of the story? Is it just an idea? Is it something that that person is trying to get something from you? Or is it a story that they do have something to offer? And there is something really there to be offered. And so don't just believe the first thing you hear or just anything you hear. You know, look, look deeper, look deeper. Uh, be careful and be cautious. Yeah, I've often so, found, I mean, even like uh, we had a, hailstorm years back and I got quotes from all the roofers and the person we ended up going with was great they were fantastic but they also weren't the the pushy salesman you know you get quotes you get some pushy salesmen you get some people that are like I don't think this person's really up to the job they don't seem competent this guy seemed competent but he was not pushy at all they said, okay, yeah, we could do this, we could do that, we could do this. And then you're like, well, I I sort of have a trust for this guy because he's not selling me. He just sort of has this quiet confidence that he can get the job done. And like the sales point isn't, oh, you need to sign today. Oh, you need to let me call your insurance company and negotiate a rate for you. It was, yeah, I'm confident that we could get this done within your timetable, within your budget. And, and it's, it's sort of saying it's clear that this is what this guy does. And what he does is organize people to come to your house and put on new gutters and a new roof. What he doesn't do is bully you into signing a piece of paper so that he can extract <laughs> as much money from your insurance company into his own pocket as possible. And so it sort of seemed like the, I was getting offered a product that was the product I was looking for. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? And with, with the good entrepreneurs on this list who had some of the most powerful companies in the world, the one thing they did was offer a product that people wanted to use. And they had a, well, they had a product to offer too. Yes. And they, continu and they, the, they continually improved their product. Right. And they had the ability to offer that and develop it and improve it. It was all there. Mm -hmm. okay. These other people, it wasn't there. Yes. And with Adam Newman, when push came to shove and they tried to go public, I keep forgetting to switch. Um, it was clear that he had no 
uh, from the from the documentary we saw, I don't want to say that it's clear that he had no. From the documentary we saw, the impression I got, I don't want to just badmouth this guy because he's, you know, um, he didn't really have all that much business acumen. He could sell people on the idea of a we revolution. He could go into different markets and say, this is the prime office space. Let's buy here. And he was using SoftBank money, which is fascinating because... SoftBank, they were the ones that really funded WeWork and pumped the valuation up to $45 billion. And SoftBank was also the company that in our last episode owns ARM. Right. The, 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 uh, the microprocessor architecture. The microchip. Yeah. yeah. The architecture for the, the, the streamline architecture for chips. So I, I feel like SoftBank... Man, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, do you know what I mean? Two stories yeah. in a row where uh, things are going wrong for SoftBank. SoftBank, we're, imp- we're, we're part of it. We're, we're part, part of, of something that went wrong, yes. Yeah, they're like, yeah, they, they might invest in a lot, but when they invest in a lot, maybe they shoot from the hip a little too fast. Yes, <laughs> they overvalue things. I And... In the WeWork documentary, which we saw, it was fascinating to say the SoftBank guys, they went in and they promised a lot of uh, like Middle Eastern investors, like oil money, oh, we'll find the next Facebook, we'll find the next Google, and the next Uber. And they said, so they started trying to make things like WeWork the next Uber with their money. You know, if you put enough money, if I put $15 billion into this in cash, like, they're going to seem like a very relevant company. The things they'll be able to do will be very relevant. Um, another thing, uh, Theranos isn't so much this way, but we saw Billy McFarland and Adam Newman. They would throw huge parties. Billy McFarland mm-hmm. in the Bahamas, Adam Newman would have these huge WeWork retreat parties. And that mm-hmm. was a big part of the thing. It, so, it was almost like cult-like indoctrination in the WeWork. Um, It's fascinating because I wonder if you were working at Microsoft in 1982, how many drugged out, (laughs) booze-filled weekends did you spend with Bill Gates? If you were working at Amazon in 1996, how many drugged out, booze-filled weekends did you spend with Jeff Bezos? The answer would probably be none because they were focusing on building their core businesses. Right. Yeah. Well, you brought up you brought up a very interesting word, David. Cult like the cult, the cult around uh, a person. And so was it really the idea or was it the person pushing these ideas? And did they really follow the idea or did they follow the person? Uh, and so a cult, the cult like I'll say I won't say cult. But I'll say cult-like uh, could be used to explain a lot of what these other people did because there was no uh, depth of ideas, and uh, they did. People did lose a lot of money, or in some cases, lose their lives, and uh, so there was kind of a cult-like uh, presence and movement in some of these areas. And so that that could be another episode talking about what is a cult mm-hmm. and how how should people protect themselves against cult-like uh, people that try to develop these cults that are harmful. Yeah. 
They're very harmful. Do you remember the janitor in the WeWork documentary? I love the janitor. Oh, he, I remember he was, him. He wasn't he was, a character. He was. He was my favorite. He was referred to as a story. So there was a general counsel for WeWork, and it's this guy in his forties or early fifties, and he's like, "So I'm here at this retreat, and they're banging on all these drums, and everyone's drinking, and Adam's up there riling up the crowd, and I'm like in my mid forties, so I sort of stick out because everyone's like a young professional, twenties, early thirties. Um, this uh, usher, janitor guy at the place that we'd rented out, he comes up to me and maybe he thought it was safe to talk to me because I was in my 40s or 50, early 50s, whatever. And he's this old black guy and he says, is this some kind of cult or something? <laughs> <laughs> and he's right. He saw it right away. What? He saw it right away. He saw it, bam, right like that, you know. Sometimes when you want to get the right perspective, ask the janitor. Mm-hmm. Because they're like a fly on the wall and they see the stuff and they're not dumb. They see what's going on. You know, okay, well, you know, this this is a, what this this is not what really you think it is. You know, I, I don't know. I they he asked you a really good question. Yeah. I love that guy. That was one of the most interesting uh I mean the segment was so short, but it was fascinating. Yes. Uh, the insight on someone looking in at it. Because all the people were in the middle of it. We're in the middle of this party and this and now, bam, 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 bam. But he was over here looking at it. <laughs> that was very revealing to me, very <laughs> revealing. And sometimes you have to remove yourself from what's happening and then look at it objectively to where your emotion doesn't take over uh, your, your, your thought, your intelligence. Mm -hmm. And you can't be let down some primrose, primrose path. Sometimes you've got to step back, like the janitor, and say, what is this? Well, I think yes. like a Nexium type thing or like the guy that got moved into the We Live apartments. And he's like, all of a sudden, like, none of my friends that weren't in the We Live apartments wanted to come over because it was weird there. And it's not like a cult like Nexium, or, but I think once you're in it, everything out of it seems strange. But if you're outside of it, everything in it seems strange, which is fascinating watching some of these documentaries where you see these people. I mean, even Billy McFarland, who was the most obvious, blatant criminal fraudster, I think, of the bunch. Uh, I do think that because like intent to defraud, Elizabeth Holmes wanted this machine to work. Uh, and she spent she got really good scientists and they just said no your idea is impossible and she says no it's not make it happen so sort of like what billy did your idea to hold a festival in four weeks is impossible but she kept trying for years billy knew that his thing was going to fail but you see even in the fire festival documentary the employees of fire media a lot of them are intelligent young people and they're they're programmers and their PR people and their marketing people. And it's like, these people, they could have had careers elsewhere. They could have been working for a different company where the CEO wasn't a fraudster and they would have been fine. But the thing is, if you're so intelligent, how could you not see that this guy was a scam and get out early? It's, I, I don't know what, but I think a lot of it is, who likes to go out and find a new job? If you know, I... I, I think I think the, the key element to this is that just because you're, you're intelligent, very intelligent, you have skills, you can program or whatever, 
that's different than judgment, mm -hmm. than making judgment on, say, career paths or anything. So be very careful. So I would just say the people who are, who are engineers or people who are uh, computer engineers or hardware engineers, uh, you know what you do. You're very good at it. But seek counsel. Step back and have people help you that you trust. And, and because sometimes your judgment uh, is not the same as technical ability. <laughs> Those are two different things. And I've seen that so many times that someone's really intelligent, really smart, but they'll make a bad decision, which is not based on what they know. It's based on something they think they know, but it's related, but it's not the same. Mm -hmm. So your judgment is not the same as just your ability to uh, to analyze something and, and give a reason why that's true. No, step back. And uh, sometimes you need to ask the janitor. Yeah, sometimes you got to ask the janitor. Now, <laughs> we've talked about the fraudsters. I'm going to just pull them off the board. Okay. So we've talked about why the fraudsters failed. Now, mm -hmm. I think we should conclude with talking about Steve Jobs. His charisma was an outlier. I don't think any of these other guys have nearly the charisma that Steve Jobs has. So, and that's, and that's not saying anything bad. No. They're just saying, hey, they were extremely successful without the charisma because they relied on something that was more valuable. Yes. Now, Steve Jobs, he did lean on his charisma a bit. But I think that in the modern era with your Adam Newmans, your Elizabeth Holmes, they think that the charisma is the key. What can we learn by looking at these five people, one, two, three, four, five, six people, only one of whom, 17%, uh, is very charismatic. So obviously charisma is not the key. Because I can give you six examples and only one of them uh, you would say is an extremely charismatic person. So what is the key to being the founder of a transformative business? Very good question. Very good question. What What is the key? Or what are the keys? What are the keys? Yes. What are the keys? One, it's having a good idea and being able to develop it. Yeah, having Two, a good idea is is not the point. Being able to develop it is the point, like you said. Being able, being able to develop it. And two is being wise, wise enough to get help from people in areas that you don't or you're not as good in or you need help on is just getting people to work with you on the t on making something work. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jeff Bezos describes his wealth as winning the lottery multiple times over. Um, there, there is luck. There is luck. Right. And he said, I started Amazon. I was selling books online. Other people were selling books online. Um, now, I did everything I could to to succeed, but there were a lot of little things that happened, cash flow things when you're a one-month-old company, you get the right investment at the right time. And without those things, you know, he said, I had to raise a million dollars in 1995. So I went to 20 people I knew from Princeton, and I got them all to give me $50,000. I asked 100 people, but only 20 would give me the 50000 And he's like, now those 80 people that said no, they would be billionaires now had they given me the 50000 but they didn't. And he's like, but the thing is, all 100 could have said no. And then I could have done another fundraising round, and those 100 could have said no. And then before I know it, I could have run out of time, and Amazon would have never really been a company. So there's so many inflection points where it could have gone to zero, and instead 
it started building and building and building. And I think the key is he had a good idea that would work. He was able to find people that believed in him. He didn't ask for too much money. He wasn't asking these people for $100 million. He was asking them for 50K back in 95. Um, he, was, he wasn't trying to make his fortune off the back of a venture capitalist. I think he was trying to build an online selling platform that would work. Right. So, one, uh, being able to deliver what you say. Two, I would say it's important to get people that are good, the right people, to help you do that. Uh, and then three, luck, just luck. And four, focus on the, the, the money to help develop your idea. Don't have the money be the objective of your, of your idea. Yeah. Those are those are good rules. I'm sure we can come up with some more, David. But uh, the, the the important thing here is for people to think about it. Be, be step back again. Step back and think about it. And sometimes, okay. Sometimes you just have to ask the janitor. <laughs> sometimes you got to ask the janitor. I okay. Well, I think we've okay. done a decent job showing that Steve Jobs is really an outsider, and you got all these other like these millennial starting companies. And they're extremely charismatic, but their companies end up being a fraud. Now, just because someone's charismatic doesn't mean their company's a fraud. But I think we should all remember the millennial that started a company that became one of the largest companies in the world is one of the least charismatic people you'll ever meet. <laughs> and that man's name is Mark Zuckerberg from White Plains, New York. Uh, people uh -huh. think he's an alien. People think he's a lizard. He's not. He's a man. He's just an extremely uncharismatic man who's extremely wealthy because he built the largest social media platform in the history of the world. So what's the lesson? I'd say focus on your business, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I say, yeah, there's some good lessons here. And I think a takeaway today is that everything does not necessarily work out with just charisma. Uh, it's important, but you have to have something to back up what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and think and think before you act and uh, because you can get into big trouble and lose a lot of money and uh, in some cases like with Theranos lose your life so or lose have uh, be part of having other people lose their lives mm -hmm. so so be careful be careful so uh, um, so when you move forward ideas are good but don't let the idea be the main idea main uh, uh force of of what you're doing say okay how can we make this idea work yeah so you, you got to go deeper than the idea to say can it work how does it work how can i make it work and then and you, you just got to go deeper and i just want to share one more story before we go and i i'm paraphrasing all these stories because i've seen interviews with these guys bill gates mm -hmm. um it says when were you most nervous in your business career and he said it was when he hired his staff because up until that point he'd been out there operating in the world sort of with paul allen his partner he had a partner it was he him and his partner when he had a staff he realized these people's livelihood depend on me making this business succeed and it was scary at that point because i wasn't just responsible for myself anymore i was responsible for these people as well now, I think the difference between Bill Gates and Billy McFarland 
is that Billy McFarlane never cared about anyone that worked at Fire Media. <laughs> not at all. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. And I'm just saying, in my opinion, Adam Newman never cared about anyone that worked at WeWork. And Elizabeth Holmes never cared about anyone that worked at Theranos. Bill Gates saw it as it was his duty to make the company succeed because now he had a responsibility to his employees as well. Yeah, I, I saw that interview and I think they said, what's your biggest, did you ever have a really big worry? He says, the biggest worry was with the first paycheck. Could I make the paycheck and pay these people the money? That's what he focused on, is to, is to give his workers what they deserved. And so he cared about the people, his people that were working for him. Mm -hmm. That's the beginning of a success. And it doesn't matter how, how successful you are, as long as you help the people that work for you. Yep. And that, that alone is a definition of success, whether you grow or not. Uh, maybe that's a good starting point on how people can be successful to be honest and help people around you. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's a decent story to say one difference between maybe it's not charismatic charisma. Maybe it's to have a leader that actually cares about the people that they're working with. Right. And that's a true leader. Mm -hmm. A leader who, who lies to you, who uses you, who discards you is not a leader. A leader is someone who cares about you. So I think with that, I'll play the outro music. Sound good? Okay. Yeah. And I, I think we've solved all the world's problems today. This has been the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, episode 112, The Myth of the Charismatic Founder. And as we leave, is there anything you'd like to... Oh, we're available on Apple, Google, Amazon Podcasts, all these leaders we've been talking about. They have platforms where we put our podcast on. So uh, you can find us there. Uh, and we're live Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Mountain Time on YouTube.com. Um... You could just search for Sons of Sequoia. That's S-E-Q-U-O-Y-A-H. If you're watching this video on YouTube, feel free to like or subscribe. And is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Yeah. Uh, search Sons of Sequoia podcast on YouTube. Because at the Sons of Sequoia, we want to encourage everyone to keep on talking. But listen more than you talk. And try to understand what the other person is saying. <laughs>